too many things to connect. <laughs> Thank God salvation is done. Imagine if you had to do all righteousness one minute before you die, which we actually have less than one minute in the biggest scope of things that have to be done for salvation to happen for you. A lifetime is less than a second of what needs to be done. So thank God for a salvation that was already done and perfected. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for allowing us to see this day and to gather around the teaching of the gospel of Christ Jesus. I pray that you speak to us by the scriptures and by your spirit and give us understanding of how we relate to the law, the function of the law, and for your people to understand these things as they led to them in Christ because there's much confusion around the matter of law and the gospel. And we just ask that you speak to us and grant us truth and repentance where we have had. We honor you, glorify you for all those who are in the hearing of this message and all who shall hear this message. May you help them with the hearing. We honor you, glorify in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, one and all. Again, we are Barry and Sovereign Grace. <laughs> this morning we are in Romans 7 again. I don't think we're going to leave Romans 7 until we're done with it. Romans 7, beginning at verse 12. And we shall work our way to verse... Did I say verse 12? No. Romans 7, verse 7 to 12. Romans 7, verses 7 to 12. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us to continue his arguments on the believer's relationship to the law. and said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all men of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You could have 
five, seven titles from this particular section of the text. But I determined to only have two. Is the law sin? Is the law sin? And number two, which summarizes more the argument, sin's advantage is the law. Sin's advantage is the law. We come back to Romans 7, again to hear the Holy Spirit's arguments about the matter of law in the gospel scheme and unfolding to us what God meant by the law and how things relate to one another in the gospel scheme. And a failure to understand how the different moving parts of the gospel connect or are disconnected. The why, the how, and when is what creates a lot of trouble for many professing Christians. And it is not a new thing at all. The confusion is not a new thing. The confusion of law and gospel has been happening right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. Because with them, the first free will, fig leaf Baptist church, (laughs) was opened. And it continues to our day and will be around till the Lord returns. Free will salvation is also a product of the ignorance of law and gospel. Law is what men do to give to God for life. That's what law is. It's what you and I would do to give to God in exchange for what God gives, which is life. The gospel is what God does, what God did, and what God will do to give life. So law is works of any kind by you and me. Gospel is grace. Gospel is grace. But where are we in this matter in the development of the arguments? Because Romans 7 did not just come from thin air. Paul had it in his mind as he is writing all these other arguments prior to Romans 7. 
Romans 7 had and has a context that Paul had in mind right from Romans chapter 1. But he had to develop the necessary background and arguments as a lead up to Romans 7. So in Romans 1 to part of Romans 3, maybe up to Romans 3, 10, somewhere, Paul has made a diagnosis and a commentary on the human condition of both Jew and Gentile and said they are not different. They are in the same WhatsApp group in terms to unrighteousness, in terms of unrighteousness. They are spiritually the same. They are all under sin. And essentially, he has concluded that they is non-righteous. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's none who understand or have become unprofitable. And in this condition, there's absolutely no hope for anyone. There's no hope for you or me. No hope for the Pope. No hope for Mary, the mother of Jesus. No hope for Mother Teresa. No hope for Gandhi. No hope for the law keeper. No hope for the moralists who feign themselves righteous by things that they approve or disapprove. And no hope for those who are in Romans 1 country who are kicking it. They're having fun. They do not care for a single thing in the world. Yet they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And the conclusion is, all deserve to die. All deserve to die. And that means to be condemned. So that is God's righteous judgment and conclusion of the matter. And by this, God has shut up the whole world in sin. In its judgment. And every mouth has been stopped of boasting. That's the whole idea behind all this. Sin has come to God's creation, not by accident, but because God wants to shut up everyone in hopelessness so that none would boast before him. But that is not the end of the matter, thank God. That's not the end of the matter. In fact, that sets the foundation for us to understand what God is going to say about their deliverance from such a condition, especially from himself. Sin would not be a problem if God was not who he is. If God was like Joe Biden, we would not be worrying about righteousness. That's the point. God is not like man. God is going to present his way of salvation 
by a righteousness that has been revealed. So this righteousness is revealed as against anyone doing anything. A righteousness that is testified by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God. A righteousness that is apart from the law. A righteousness that is apart from human obedience of any kind. Because our sinful condition completely disqualifies us all from doing anything that is worthy of an exchange with God. But the righteousness that God has revealed is through a person, a particular person, and it's not Muhammad, and it's not you. It's another person called Christ Jesus. It is in him that God determined to do or transact all matters of salvation, the salvation of sinners that were given him. And this Christ Jesus has been brought forth and displayed on the cross as the propitiation as the satisfaction for the sins of his people by his blood. He came to satisfy for all the sins of his people. And related to this, related to this Christ Jesus is the doctrine of the imputation, the reckoning, the charging of sin and righteousness as central to the transaction. Imputation is central to the transaction of the gospel. Theologians use the term substitutionary atonement, but at the heart of that is the doctrine of imputation, a reckoning of something to someone. And this Christ has come to stand in the place of sinners. In union with them. To make satisfaction for all their sin debt. And in him for God to declare them as just, as righteous. That is the only solution for all those who have problems that have been described in Romans 1, 2, and 3. This Christ has come to declare these people as righteous by him being the propitiation for their sins. And in this, Christ Jesus was imputed and charged with the sins of all his people. They were legally accounted to him. Sin was not put on the person of Christ so as to defile him. No, sin was already committed by us. He was only coming 
to assume the legal obligation, the responsibility of them to make payment for them. And in turn, his people were freely charged by God himself, were imputed with his righteousness, imputed with the perfection that is in Christ, imputed with the faithfulness of Christ as if they were faithful as Christ, even though they are not. But that's how God sees them in Christ. So the righteousness that we possess came by his own obedience. It came by his own doing, not our own doing. But once you talk imputation, then all matters of salvation are completely removed from the doing of the sinner. These words have implications. Once you talk of implication, sorry, once you talk of imputation, it means salvation has nothing to do with Sean. Otherwise, we would not be using the language. But that's what people do not like. It makes them sad that God does not consider any of their works in this matter of how they will stand before him as justified. Because everything said, the human condition and experience has only one particular issue. It comes with only one particular issue. And it is not paying taxes, even though I hate paying taxes. That's one thing that I could abolish. I would abolish it today by decree. <laughs> Corruption in high and low places is abound, it abounds. Read the news, hear the news. Corruption everywhere. Debt issues. Wars across the world. Sickness. Those are Temporary issues. They have nothing to do with your justification before God. A sinner then only has one problem. It is God. A sinner only, everything said and done, they only have one problem, and it is God. God himself is our problem. And that means Our problem is our justification before him. What shall we give in exchange that he may be satisfied and pass over us in judgment? What shall we give? What shall we give to him that satisfies him? He has to be satisfied. And God is not corrupt. So you can't do backroom deals or backdoor deals. And so this matter is a problem for all who are born of a woman. It's a problem for all. 
It is a problem for the prettiest princess with two million followers on Instagram. <laughs> for the rich and powerful, the well-connected, as it is for the poor and the ugly. They have the same problem. And so God was gracious to provide a way and also to teach his way of doing salvation. His way of bringing sinners to himself apart from their sin, condemning them. Because if God will just bring you to himself apart from this way, he has no option but to condemn. His very nature demands it. So a way he has that satisfies and satisfied him. But the Jew, the law keeper of the day, had some misunderstanding about their own condition. And also had a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law, as many have in our day. They were using the law wrongly, thinking that the law was for commanding them to God as righteous, for recommending them to God as righteous by their obedience to it. That's what every Israelite thought the law was given to do. And so they tried to approach God by the law. But there are only two ways to approach God. You can approach God in one of two ways, by law or by grace. Not law and grace. So they tried to approach God by the law through the testimony of their obedience to it. A testimony of their works. And so naturally, they had arguments against what Paul was teaching about the matter of Christ. And salvation. All these writings in Romans 7 are coming because people have objections. They have objections to what God has proposed as the way to approach him. And they're saying, or thinking this was some heretical teaching. How could there be salvation that happens apart from one keeping the law they reasoned by their flesh. And how can the law be set aside if anyone should be saved? That's what the Judaizers were bringing to the Galatian churches. Saying, no, you can't set aside Moses. You see, many do not want to set aside the law. They do not want to see Moses retired they love to carry the burden of the law. Some people just love to be abused. They don't know what to do if someone is not abusing them. They are gluttons for punishment. But the Bible says it is zeal that is not in accordance with the truth. 
not in line with the truth. Though the Jews had grown under the law and had witnessed the gospel being preached in the many types and shadows, they did not get it. They did not look at these types with faith, but in unbelief. In other words, if you look at the law and you end up with the law, the Bible says that's unbelief. You're supposed to come out with Christ from that. Looking at the whole law, apart from faith, without looking to Christ or looking for Christ, is unbelief. That's Hebrews teaching. That's the book of Hebrews teaching. So the Jews and Israel as a nation at large were plagued by unbelief. Even though they possessed the scriptures, they possessed all the types and shadows and gospel promises. But Paul comes and says, his gospel is righteousness by the free imputation of God's righteousness. And this is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And that is through faith. Every line that I'm saying is very purposeful. We are developing very critical foundation to understand the arguments that Paul is presenting. He says this gospel is through faith. And we have explained that over and over because there's still a serious misunderstanding among many professing Christians and preachers about what justification by faith means. Justification by faith is not something that is understood by just reading the verse that says so. It must be defined in the greater context of salvation. And this is where you begin in the understanding. You have to begin somewhere to get to justification by faith. And why justification by faith? What has God said about salvation? God has said salvation is his work alone. For my sake, I will do it. For my sake, I will deliver them. For the sake of my name. And that means by his grace alone. And that means it is the work of Christ alone. The work of the cross alone. And that is the fullness of all things salvation. It begins with God and it ends with God. All of God, all of Christ. That is saying the same thing. So justification by faith has to be understood in that context. 
Justification by faith is not saying justification at faith or because of your faith. By you exercising faith. Because that would be a condition that has to be met in you for salvation to happen. Thereby destroying salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone means salvation 100% outside of what the sinner did. What the sinner is doing and what they will ever do. In whatever shape, way or form, whether good or ugly. So salvation by faith is the opposite of salvation by works of any kind. Not even believing itself. What God does in you is not a condition that causes your acceptance by him. It is what he did outside of you that is the condition of your salvation. It has to be outside. And that is what he works in you to see and believe in time. No sinner is able to believe God and to their justification because we still stumble in many ways because of unbelief. Unbelief plagues us every day. And we are not getting in and out of salvation every time we have a 30 minute of unbelief or a day of unbelief. In and out, in and out. That becomes too busy. (laughs) Also, remember this. God does not exchange salvation based on anything that is imperfect. So salvation by faith Everything considered means salvation by the faith or the faithfulness of Christ to his Father on behalf of all those that he represented. So what is in the background? In that statement of salvation by faith is a contrast with salvation by law-keeping. The Jews think salvation is by something that they do with the law. And God says, no, salvation is something that God did in Christ. Law you do, in Christ's lazy boy gospel, you sit. And you just thank God that it is done. So salvation by faith means salvation by what Christ did as against salvation by your own obedience to the law. That's the distinction that's being made. So you have to listen carefully to catch the difference. 
All those that Christ redeemed and justified, God grants faith and dependence towards Christ in the appointed time. But this is not the faith that made them righteous before God. It was Christ's faithfulness to meet all the requirements that were stipulated to him by the Father to come and accomplish as the mediator, the surety, the testator, and substitute of the covenant. These are fundamental building blocks of the gospel. Christ is he who was under contract to accomplish all things that were stipulated in the covenant of our salvation. So he was the mediator of it. He's the surety of it. He's the testator of it. And he's the substitute. So once this Christ has come and has discharged all that he was required of the Father, then the law must be set aside for all those that he served. Because whatever the law may have required of them was fully met and satisfied in him. As he became, in the language of Galatians, a debtor to the whole law. Because he was born under the law. If you're born under the law, you've become a debtor to the whole thing. So Christ came as a debtor to everything that the law required. And he honored every jot and tittle. And on that basis, the law has been set aside on behalf of his people. His people are not under the law because the law has nothing that it requires of them. That Christ did not already make good on. And on account of all this, and more, Paul says, the true believer then who is under grace is not under law. Cannot be under law. And that is say, grace and law are two categories. They're two different spaces of belonging with different addresses and zip codes. They are the only two allowable combinations. And they cannot be mixed. They do not mix well. They do not fly together. They are not birds of the same feather. But once you say that, (laughs) once you tell the religious people that law and grace are to be kept separate, all hell breaks loose. Because men and women do not like to hear the separation of law and gospel. Especially the end of the law. The discontinuity of the law. It rubs them the wrong way. But why? 
because it leaves them with only one option to deal with. They have to deal with faith in God alone. Faith strips men and women of anything and everything that they have imagined they could use for salvation. It strips them of any earthly advantage that they think they may have before God. Faith makes everyone naked before God in terms of what they have to bring so that God alone is the one who clothes them. You have to come to him naked. And that is why Adam and Eve tried to cover their own nakedness. That is mixing law and grace. And so what did God do for them? When he made them the animal skins, he did not put the animal skins on top of their fig leaves. They had to take off their fig leaves before he could, either way, they're going to dry up. (laughs) They're going to dry up. So Paul says, if one is under grace, they are not by necessity, not under law. And sin shall not have dominion over them. And a lot of preachers will say that is saying, oh, you shall not be sinning anymore. Or you are not going to be struggling with sin anymore. That's not the argument at all. But that's an indicative statement. And we have expanded this matter greatly in the previous two messages in Romans 7. Paul is saying grace is a superior way of existence. And in grace, sin has no more dominion over a sinner. Sinner, sorry, sin has no more right. It is nothing to use to get the sinner to court as to condemn them. Because the law that would have been used to condemn them has been fulfilled for them. Has been given everything that it requires. So sin has no dominion to condemn you. Sin and law have no jurisdiction over one who is under grace. They do not have the right to rule over them as to determine their life or to condemn them anymore. The redeemed are reckoned by God under grace, and that means in the spotless righteousness of Christ. They are seen as having met or fulfilled all the requirements of their salvation in Christ. This part is not being emphasized enough. That the redeemed should not be viewed or interpreted outside of Christ. And that is 
what many people do of themselves and others. And that is why many lack assurance. Because they are viewing themselves outside of what God says they are in Christ. So since God has given you a righteousness that is not of yourself, he also looks at you outside of yourself with the identity of another. We are not carrying our own national IDs when it comes to the gospel. We carry the identity of another. We carry the identity card of another. The identity card of Jesus. That's what we possess now. If you reduce it to the matter of your driver's license and identity, everyone who is of Christ carries the identity card of Christ Jesus, not their own, that they got at the BMV. Okay? <laughs> so in Christ, we have this identity and we are complete in him. We are complete in him who is complete in himself. Okay? So you may have mortgages and bills to pay, but in Christ you are complete. You owe nothing. But in Romans 7, Paul says, the redeemed have died to the law that they may be married to another. Die to the law through the body of Christ Jesus. And that is speaking to a change of husbands. A change of covenant. Paul says, a woman who gets married to another man whilst her husband lives is guilty of adultery under the law. She will be called an adulteress and worthy of death by implication because that's what the law says. A marriage to the new husband would be illegitimate if that were to happen. But the gospel was not transacted on illegitimate grounds. It was done according to God's strict righteousness. Does the church being married to the law, married to sin, married to the flesh, under sin, under death, and condemnation, had to have that marriage ended. That marriage had to be ended. Legally, by way of death, or as we noted in the last message, by the certificate of divorce, before they could be married to Christ. So the first marriage was ended by death. That's what line Paul uses in Romans 7 to bring an end to that marriage, the death of Christ. And that means we were also united with Christ in that death. That's the only way we could have died to it. So death, the death of Christ is what set aside that marriage covenant. 
That's what canceled that marriage covenant. So it is impossible then to teach and believe the gospel if one does not speak about the death of that old marriage. It's part of the gospel testimony to speak of the death of that marriage to Moses. Because Christ will not take double crossing where this thing was in high school. Some girl or some dude will be dating one or two girls at this school and that other school. The term was double cross. So being married to Christ and Moses is double crossing. It's unfaithfulness. So God put away Moses. He killed Moses and buried him on Mount Nebo, if you still remember, so that he, Moses, may not cross over into the promised land with God's people as this was the responsibility of Joshua, and that's Jesus. Okay? The crossing of God's people into his promises is the sole responsibility of Christ. And that's why God killed Moses. This was not to say Moses was not a saved person. This was not about the person of Moses. Moses was elect. Moses was saved. He appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. But Moses represented a bigger testimony of the Lord. It's not about his salvation as a person. He's representing something bigger than himself. So when we say Moses, the law, the old husband, we are making a reference to the same thing. So the church has been legally set free, loosed from the law of Moses. She was made free from that husband and also was made fit to be married to another in a legal, acceptable way. And the church did not decide this. This is what God purposed and did through Christ. And having been married to Christ, the church now bears all the elect, the fruit of righteousness to God. The fruit of righteousness. And this righteousness is not righteousness that you and I are doing is the fruit of the righteousness of Christ that God has imputed to all who belong to him. And also, related to that, there's no bearing of fruit or anything that pleases God apart from being married to Christ. The marriage to Christ is the only real, legitimate marriage that God recognizes. And everything else is nothing but a shadow of the reality, a shadow of the good things. The substance is in Christ. 
But then Paul said, something that rubs law keepers the wrong way. Romans 7 verse 5. Paul says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. That's an offensive statement to the lawkeeper. Sinful desires were aroused by the law to bring forth fruit unto death. So Paul gives us the equation of how sin and law relate and work together to produce a particular outcome. He says sin and law gives what? Fruit unto death. And that equation never changes no matter how one spins it. Even if one is sincere, it does not change. That is what the law does and was given to do. If you bring law to sin, death is always the result. No exceptions. And that is God's judgment of the matter. So the marriage to Christ brought forth the fruit to life and of life. And marriage to the law brought forth fruit to death. So that is the contrast between law and grace. Law and its marriage brings fruit to death. That is condemnation. Marriage to Christ brings forth fruit to life. That is your righteousness. But what is our current condition? What is our current standing, our relationship to the law? Where are we? Romans 7, 6 says, But now, we are in the but now time of the revelation of salvation. But now, we are still married to the law. <laughs> doesn't say that. But now we have been released from the law. Because we have died to what controlled us. So death there is what separated us from that. The death of Christ, of course. And why this happened? So that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code, Romans 7, 6. And that's the NET. We have been released, we have been set free, we have been justified from the law. How, again, were we set free? Because we vowed to fight sin. We vowed, stop watching that movie, <laughs> to make a resolution to God that you become a better person 2024 because it seems all the resolutions of 2023 are not going well. So you renew your vows <laughs> as it were, to your commitment. Some dedicate their life and rededicate. That's how that happens. They have to rededicate. Every year they come and they have to Rededicate and say they have been born again, become a born again Christian, 
Well, you're supposed to have been born again before you became a Christian. Okay? So some will say, oh, give money to God. Attend church, speak in tongues. These are all things that religion says for people to hold on to for their testimony and assurance of salvation. No, there's only one way that you were set free. Paul says we died to that which controlled us, to that which held us in bondage, in sin and death, that we may serve God in the new life of the Spirit. And the new life of the Spirit is contrary to trying to serve God under the old written code that is the law. So the new life of the Spirit is not speaking to your morality. It's speaking to the platform that God has given you in Christ. The platform of being married to Christ and being under the covenant that Christ established in his own blood. That's the new life of the Spirit. It's not speaking to your behavior. So this way of the Spirit is better, is superior, is acceptable to God, and it pleases God. So if anyone says you are serving God through the law, because in courts, because the law is eternal, you're going to hear that argument many, many times. Nowhere did Paul ever make that argument to say you're still married to the law because the law is eternal. He rubbishes that idea. Or that it was written by the very finger of God. You're going to hear that a lot. The law cannot be abrogated because it was written by the very finger of God. Know that they don't know what they're talking about. And give them a prescription. Write them a prescription. Even though you're not a doctor or a pharmacist. Just give them a prescription. Take a long nap. Maybe drink more water. They suffer from dehydration. (laughs) But the scriptures need more than reading. That's what I am trying to get you to understand by God's grace. The scriptures need more than reading or quoting. They need understanding. Because the Jews were quoting scriptures to Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, you don't know what they are talking about. You do not know the scriptures. By that he meant you do not understand what they are saying. They need God-given understanding. So anybody can quote scripture but say, okay, you tell me what they mean. Okay? So the matter that Paul raised in Romans 7 verse 5. In regard to the law, did not go down well with those who had a wrong understanding of the law. And this is what Paul said again, just for purposes of reference. Romans 7, 5. Because that is his takeoff point from verse 7. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. How could the law work with sin that way? It's inconceivable. 
That cannot be right. So they wrongly think and say. So Paul had or had anticipated the objection that would ensue out of that understanding. And now he goes deeper into the treaties of the law as it relates to sin. There is an objection behind everything that is said. So he has to answer to that objection. So verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Given everything that I've said. If the law sin, because that would be the natural conclusion. If the law is bringing fruit unto death, then it has to be sin. What do we say to the arguments of dying to the law? And that the law brought forth fruit unto death. What is the conclusion to be drawn by the natural unenlightened mind? Unenlightened mind. The law must be sin. That has to be the conclusion. Because after all, the wages of sin is death. So what's the problem? They have equated sin and law. Law and sin are not equal. But they are bodies. They are related. Surely not the same thing, but they work together. So death, death just does not come to come. It comes because sin and law have been mixed. That's Paul's point. Sin and law are a couple joined to the hip. Ever seen these glue sticks? I've, I've won in my garage somewhere. These glue sticks, they come like this. They have two portions of ingredients with different labels. And as long as you keep the portions separate, it does not get sticky. But as soon as you mix them together, you immediately make some gorilla glue. Very strong glue. When you mix them, But as long as you keep them separate, they're not going to stick. The moment you mix them, they're going to stick. And Paul says, No, you do not understand why the law brings about fruit unto death. It is not because the law is sin. He says, Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. On the contrary, to what you may conclude about the law and the gospel that I'm preaching, which is wrong, I would not have known sin except the law, except through the law. In other words, the law was given to discover that which was already there. 
the law was given to discover, discover, discover. Something that was already there, lying torment. A sickness, a cancer, hidden in the nature of being of the person. It was already there. Always was there. But it was like taking a nap. So the law comes and exposes the sin. How? For I would not have known, for I would not have known covetousness. Unless, unless, unless the law has said, you shall not covet. Thou shall not covet. What is that saying? It was saying, or it is saying, Paul was already coveting. Paul was already a sinner, but he did not know this. He thought he was just having a natural feeling, like a secret admirer of things beautiful and good, and wanting them for himself. Oh, I really like that neighbor's car. He didn't see anything beyond just liking it. Oh, I love the rims on it. I love the color. Oh, it's a big, nice truck. He did not see any real problems with that seemingly good feeling and liking for something that did not belong to him. And the Lord came and said, Thou shalt not covet. And that is coming from the 10th commandment of the Decalogue. So Paul purposefully goes for the very Ten Commandments to show that this is the law that discovered his sin to him. And also brought about his death. And the very law that he also died to through the body of Christ. This is the law that he's talking about. Because this is important This is important because you hear many say, oh, the law that we die to is the ceremonial law and the civil laws. But the moral law, like this one, that still remains binding. But Paul goes straight to the very moral law as the founding document of the old covenant Because these are the laws, thou shalt not covet, was on the two tablets of stone that were in the Ark of the Covenant. So these are the foundation documents of what the covenant of the law is. And he says, this one causes sinners problems. The ceremonial law never caused anyone any trouble. The ceremonial laws did not cause anybody trouble. They're not the ones that condemn people. The ceremonial laws were given to try and actually help people as pictures of Christ, of the cleansing that Christ would bring. So Paul has in this given us the function of the law and defined that the law he meant is the moral law. 
And it was to discover and expose sin. It was the x-rays to spiritual matters, as x-rays are to broken bones and infected lungs. X-rays, they discover, they reveal, but they do not heal. No one ever got treated from pneumonia by getting zapped by x-rays every two days. Like the doctor says, oh, Paul, you have x-ray, you have pneumonia. This is your prescription. Come every day and we'll zap you with x-rays. <laughs> what will happen? You can only see the pneumonia getting worse and worse. No treatment. That's the law. That's what Paul is saying. The law was given to expose that which is hidden. And that is sin. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all men of evil desire. But there was a problem when the law was brought to the proper consciousness of Paul. Sin, the sin in him took opportunity. It took advantage by the commandment. Sin took advantage by the commandment. To do what? To produce in him all manner of evil desire. All kinds of wrong desires. But how could that be? Is it not that the law should help to tame my evil desires? Well, that's what you're told. The law is supposed to tame your evil desires. Paul says, no. Sin took advantage of the law to create even more evil desires. It multiplied and amplified my sinfulness. I found myself not just coveting one thing, but anything that I laid my hands on or my eyes on or anything that crossed my mind, I wanted to have it. I went to the mall and suddenly I just want everything that is at the mall. (laughs) I had many unbridled evil desires, things which are contrary to the very commandment, to not covet. That is what the law should do in you and in me if we are rightly using the law. That is the rightful use of the law Increased desire for evil things. The very things it says should not be done. That's the very thing that Kathleen would do. So Paul is saying, the law is not the problem. That's his argument. The problem is the sin that is in you, they do not mix well. They do not mix well with the law. Once you have sin and law together, they always produce some very undesirable effect. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin did not have any power to rise from its slumber. Sin could not condemn apart from the law. In other words, sin has nothing 
to hold on to. If there's no law to say, do not touch this. Do this. Think this. And this is what happened to Abraham, to Adam, sorry. This is what happened to Adam. Adam was not a righteous man in himself, contrary to the traditions of the church. Adam was not a righteous man. He was made good. But he was not made good as Jesus was made good in his flesh. Adam was made good, but good does not mean righteousness. He was made good for his purpose. And how do we know that he was not righteous? Because when the commandment came to not eat, guess what happened? Sin took advantage by the commandment to bring death, and we all died in him. That did not happen with Jesus. But it happened with Adam. Because they were made differently. And Paul said, verse 9, I was alive. Once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul says, I was alive. I felt alive. I thought I was alive. Alive to God according to his measurement of himself. He thought he was bearing fruit to God and that was without the law. And by this, I think Paul means before he understood what the law was actually saying because we know that Paul was a Jew, was born under the law. So he was always under the law. So this has to be a reference to him coming to the understanding of what the law was actually saying. So before the law had really come to him to understand what was being said by it, he thought he was giving the law everything that it required. That's why in Philippians 3, he said, according to the law, Under the law, I was blameless, man. (laughs) I was righteous. But how could he call that righteousness lost and done if it was actually blamelessness? Because he discovered, he learned the truth. But with the introduction of the law to his understanding, he says sin revived And he died. But Paul did not die. So in what manner did he die? In what way did he die? He died by way of condemnation. Immediately he realized, I'm condemned. I am so condemned. And there's no way out. He understood that he was condemned and there was no way out. So he is describing the work of the law when it meets a sinner. It does two things. It revives. 
it discovers, actually three, it discovers and it revives the sin. Paul is careful in his selection of words. He did not say the law causes sin. He says it revives and then brings death in judgment. So see, see the difference. Sin is in the nature of being. The law revives what is already there. There was no sin in Christ. So there was no law that could revive sin in him. Because as I said, he was made differently He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And that to say Christ Jesus could not have sinned, impossible for him to have sinned. So sin had to be imputed to him by a legal charge, but could never be found in his person. Perceive the flow of things. Paul says, sin lying as if asleep, as if dead. The law comes and sin is discovered and energized and causes more evil desire and death comes as the fruit. Sin, the law comes, discovers, it revives it, gives it power for you to sin even more with the end of producing death as condemnation, condemnation in you. That's how God purposed for this to happen. So I have a question. If God knew about this relationship of sin and law, why then did he make things this way? Because you could have done things different. There's none who made themselves a sinner. This would come as a surprise to many. But there's truth of it. There's none who made themselves a sinner. Adam did not make himself a sinner because he did not create himself. He discovered that he was a sinner. He did not make himself a sinner. You cannot give yourself a sin nature as you can't give yourself a righteous nature. It is both of God because of him and through him and to him are all things. This is all of God's doing. Then I've tried to clean up. It's of God's doing. So God did things this way, made us this way, to prove that righteousness and life come from Christ alone. And by his doing alone and shutting us up in hopelessness, that he may introduce a better hope. So there's a purpose to how things have been done by God. Whatever we do in the flesh has to be 
inspected by law. As Christ was also inspected by law. That's why he was born under the law, that he may be inspected for any blemishes of sin. And once inspected and he is pronounced as sinless, then he is qualified to be our substitute, to be the perfect high priest and sacrifice. Okay? So that's why Jesus said to go through the trial. That's why he had to be born under the law. After the inspection is done, a pronouncement has to be made because under the Old Testament, the priests had to inspect all the sacrifices that were being given for blemishes. With Christ Jesus, you are not inspecting the physical person, you're inspecting the spiritual person. You're not looking for physical blemishes, but looking for spiritual blemishes. So he was inspected by the law. And so the trials at the end of it, he was found both guilty and righteous. He was righteous. Miss Potiphar testified of that. Not Miss Potiphar, sorry. Uh, what's his name? Pilate. Miss Pilate testified of that, and Pilate himself. And yet, the same Christ was found guilty because of the sins of his people. Okay? But everyone has to be inspected. And when the law comes and inspects one who is a sinner, it only brings one outcome, that is death. When Christ came and was found guilty of our sins, the outcome was the same. He had to die, but not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. So sin and law always brings death to you and even to Christ by reason of our sins. So if anyone comes and says, you should go back under the law, they don't know what they're talking about. They're only giving sin power to bring death to you. You're always going to feel condemned. I am not lying to you. If I preach the law constantly here, you're going to be feeling unsaved at the end of every message. They're not helping you in any way. So the solution to sin is not law, but grace. Under grace, sin has no dominion, and the law cannot kill you because you died to it. You're not married to it. That which you are not married to has no legal right to command you. The law cannot command life or death because you are married to Christ. Christ Jesus, as the new husband, has no desire to condemn you. Christ Jesus, as your husband, has never had desire to seek for divorce because of your imperfections, nor to have you condemned. Because there's no condemnation for those in Christ. 
And that's the conclusion of the arguments in Romans 8. And this is incredible stuff. It's unbelievable stuff. But that's what the text is saying. Verse 10. In the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The commandment of the law was given as if to give life. It said, do this and you shall live. But if you do not, all the curses of the law will be brought upon you. That's what God said. So Israel, when they were given the law, they all said in unison, whatever the Lord has said for us to do, we will do it. (laughs) They were clueless. They should have said no. They said no and ran away because this was a bad deal. They had two problems of underestimation. They underestimated the requirements of life and what the law really demanded of them, which is perfection. They did not understand that. They did not understand Deuteronomy 27, 26. Israel, like many of our day, will claim to be law keepers also overestimated their own ability to do the law. They had a false sense of ability. People think that if they can just say they are doing the law and they sincerely believe it, then they are actually doing the law. Saying you're doing the law and doing the law are not the same thing. If you are not perfectly obeying the law, you are actually transgressing it. By the very nature of the law and the covenant. Because the covenant of the law says what? If you break one commandment, you're guilty of the whole thing. If you break one commandment of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. And that is saying perfection. So if you're not perfectly keeping the law, you are breaking it. You're transgressing the law every single day. So the very commandment that many think brings life by their own obedience and brings favor to them from God does the very opposite. It brought not just some (laughs) boo-boos, not just some scratch marks. It brought death. It brought condemnation. And that's why Paul calls it the ministry of death and condemnation. So death and condemnation are the payout of being married to the law. And Paul is wanting these people to understand what they're dealing with when it comes to the law and how the whole puzzle fits together. He wants them to run to Christ and not ever consider another way of salvation apart from God's grace. Verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, Deceived me. 
and by it killed me. Sin taking occasion or seizing the opportunity through the commandment. See that Paul is not wanting to separate the law from sin even though the law is not sin. But sin takes occasion by reason of the commandment. It always does. That's its nature. If you want to condemn a person, just give them a commandment or commandments to do. It doesn't matter what. And attach life and death to the doing or not doing of those commandments. It doesn't matter what you tell them to do. Brush your teeth at seven in the morning every day without fail. You've already condemned them. They're going to miss one day. Even if they use an alarm clock, they're going to miss one day. One day they're going to sleep so deep they're not going to hear the clock. Take trash out. Sin will always take opportunity by the commandment to deceive. But what does that mean? Deceive you, how does it deceive you? Deceive me into thinking that I could do the law. That's the first deception. Sin deceives people into thinking that they can do the law. Because they're not hearing what the law is actually saying. And so Paul says to the Galatians, all you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, you have to be bewitched to want to go back under the law. So deceive me into thinking that I could do the law. That's number one. Number two, deceive me into thinking that the law was good for me. Paul thought the law was good for him. Number three. Sin deceived me into thinking that I could earn life by my obedience to it. That I could earn life by my obedience to the law. That's deception. Anyone who claims that to be doing the law is deceived by their sin. That's what Paul is saying. They are deceived. That is the other way to say the same thing, but it will not be received well by the Judaizers. You know them. They will throw a temper tantrum. Say, so are you saying people should just go and do whatever they want? Well, people are already doing what they, whatever they want. <laughs> people are still sinning exactly the way that they want. But what happened, Paul? Sin deceived me because of and through the commandment and it killed me. It brought death to me. What killed Paul? Was it sin or the law? Both, but in this order. 
The law is what killed him as in pronouncing the judgment, but because of sin. And you too have this relationship to sin and law. Naturally, this would be your relationship to sin and law. You'll be deceived by it and be killed by it. Unless God made you to die to the law through the body of Christ. So the body of Christ removes the law from the equation. Because death happens when you put them together. Christ comes by his obedience. He removes the law by way of fulfillment so that your sin here and now does not condemn you anymore because you are not under law. So you must die to the law in order to live, to be made alive to God. And God says we die to the law. I don't care what people will come and use for arguments. They will bring their confessions of faith and try to play gymnastics around this matter. Theologically, this is very clear. You have to die to law in order for you to live to God. And sin has no more dominion as to bring death through its shenanigans, bringing evil desires. Yes, evil desires are still here. They're still there. The coveting is still there because of indwelling sin, because we are not yet glorified. But there's one thing that we know for sure. They cannot bring death. They can't bring condemnation. And people say, can someone be saved who is still doing this and doing that? They're stopping doing this or that is not what took power from sin. It's the death of Christ alone that took power from sin and law to condemn. It's not about this person, what they're doing or not doing. It's about what Christ did. And that's very offensive. This is very offensive. Because people still want people to be like this and that as they approve themselves. Well, the matter is, God has approved this way of Christ. This is the only way that he approves the death of Christ. Verse 12. And that's our last verse. The people who are coming against Paul, they want Paul to say something that they can get on him about. And say, see, don't listen to this guy. He's an antinomian. <laughs> That's exactly what they are thinking. And this is why Paul is teaching this by the Holy Spirit. They want Paul to draw a conclusion that is horrific and say, of course, we knew you're an antinomian. 
How can you say such things about the law of God and say the law is sin? That's where they want him to go. But Paul does not. His conclusion, therefore, the law is holy. And the commandment, holy and just and good. And to that we say, Amen. But that's the truth. The law is indeed holy. And the commandment, holy, just and good. The law is not sin. Even though it brings death. But Vestkov is the problem for you with the law. The holiness of the law is a big problem for you and for me because it brings death to a sinner. The justness or goodness of the law is bad news for you because sin will deceive you through it to bring death. It deceives through something that is good. It deceives through something that is good. It's almost like I do set up some mice traps. And they have different versions of them. Some of them, they're poison. But in the poison, they also put some really good stuff. <laughs> put some good stuff. Put some peanut butter. They have such a weakness for peanut butter. Smells very good from afar. And they come in, there's a little bit of poison in it. And the mouse will come and eat and it will die. There's something that was seemingly good in that peanut butter. But the end of it was death. So to the mind of the mouse, the peanut butter was smelling so good. It was irresistible. But that was the way to its death. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with peanut butter. But there's everything wrong with peanut butter when it is being mixed with poison in it, with red poison. It will kill. But apart from the red poison, the mouse will come and eat and go home satisfied. So there's nothing wrong with the law itself. The problem is our sin. And that is to say, Paul was not an antinomian. He was not an anti-law person. As has been charged in certain circles. Or even during his time. He was being accused of being an antinomian. And this treatment of the law and the sinner reveals that he was not an antinomian. He was not saying, you go and sin and do some crazy stuff. It wasn't necessary. And we are not being antinomian by repeating the same. Those who will call us antinomians reveal that they do not understand the arguments 
They do not hear what the law is saying. They do not understand the gospel either. Unfortunately, they do not. What is wrong is you and me because of indwelling sin. Sin is our problem. The law can only power your sin up from its nap to bring death. That's all it can do for you. So the brethren do not glory in the law. Those who are born of God, they do not glory in the law because they understand what the law was actually given to do. The brethren glory in God's grace alone by which we have been made to die to the law. They glory in sin being dispossessed of dominion. Sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under the law. And they glory that we are now, by Christ Jesus, bearing fruit unto righteousness to God. We're bearing fruit of the righteousness that God has freely given us in Christ. And Apostle Paul will conclude for us the arguments in Galatians 2 because it's an argument that is related to what he's discussing in Romans 7. Galatians 2, 19 to 21, and we'll end there. We're going to be reading from the NET, New English Translation. Paul says, for through the law, I die to the law. There has to be a death to the law. Otherwise, you have no gospel. Through the law, condemning Christ, I die to the law. That's what that is saying. So that I may live to God. That's Romans 7, 3. Bearing fruit to God. So that I may live to God. Implication being that if he does not die to the law, he could never live to God. Verse 20, he explains to us how he died to the law that he may live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. That's the union with Christ at the death of Christ. I have been crucified with him. And it is no longer I who live. So he takes it to another level and says, no, it's not me anymore because I died. But Christ lives in me because he resurrected. So the life I now live in the body, this life that I'm living, I live because of my faithfulness. doesn't say that. I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. He died for me. That's how I live. Not in some resolutions. I do not live because of resolutions. I do not live looking to my improvement in morality. 
I live only because I'm crucified with the Son of God who lives in me. I do not set aside God's grace. I do not, and I cannot set aside God's grace. Why? Because if righteousness could come through the law, if righteousness could come to call me justified, to make me righteous before God, if that could come through the law, then Christ died in vain. He should not have come. He was wasting time because he came to do that which Sean could do. (laughs) Yeah. Christ died in vain if righteousness could come through your own obedience. That's what he's saying. If righteousness could come through you and my obedience, then Christ Jesus wasted his time. Because all you need to do is to give people more law to do. Yeah? So the law is not sin. But it's bad for you. If anything, what the law can say now is, she owes me nothing. I was given everything that I needed by Christ. I have no more claim on you. I'm satisfied. God is satisfied. That's God's gospel. (laughs) Amen. We are done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words, wonderful words about the understanding of the law as it relates to sin, what it was given to do to discover sin, to revive sin, and to bring death. This is very clear teaching by the Holy Spirit, in spite of the traditions that we find in much of the professing church, who want to keep God's people married to the law, And yet, we are told we have died to the law through the death of Christ, that we may live to God, that we may bear fruit to God. And that is the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the utterance. We pray that your people come and hear these wonderful things about Christ. And may you tattoo these truths on the hearts of your people. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. No, we are married to. Don't be going out, hanging out with all these husbands that you are supposed to have died to. Especially Moses. 